The message today is in two parts. The first part is the story of a transcendentalist. Margaret Fuller. In 1810, in Cambridgeport, Massachusetts, Margaret Fuller was born the oldest of nine children. Her Unitarian father, Timothy, a lawyer, politician, and member of Congress from Massachusetts, pushed her to read as soon as she could talk. She was translating Virgil from Latin at age six. She later claimed that this early pressure led to headaches, nightmares, and sleepwalking. (laughs) Margaret had some formal girls' schooling, but it didn't impress her. She said, very early, I knew that the only object in life was to grow. By her late teens, she spoke several several languages, began reading the German romantics, and discussing them with a group of about 30 or so young adults who were destined to become writers, reformers, and educators, including, of course, Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson. These were the transcendentalists, as they came to call themselves. Some were members of the Harvard class of 1920, excuse me, 1829. Most were Unitarians. Many were ministers concerned about the state of the church and committed to its spiritual renewal. Here's what Margaret says about her own spiritual renewal when she was 21. It was November 1831. She writes, It was Thanksgiving Day, and I was obliged to go to church or exceedingly displease my father. I almost always suffered much in church from a feeling of disunion with the hearers and dissent from the preacher, but today, more than ever before, the services jarred upon me. After the service, Margaret wanders alone in a winter field, and she writes, I paused beside a little stream which I had envied in the merry fullness of its spring life. It was shrunken, voiceless, choked with withered leaves. I went on and on till I came to where the trees were thick about a little pool. I sat down there, all was dark and quiet and still. Suddenly, the sun shone out with transparent sweetness, and there passed into my thought a beam which has never since departed from me. A truth came to me, she said. I saw there was no self, that selfishness was all folly and the result of circumstance, that it was only because I thought self real that I suffered, that I only had to live in the idea of the all, and all was mine. End of quote. By the time Margaret was 25, she was known for her gift for friendship and her gift for conversation. Emerson, who had a long, complex friendship with Fuller, said her conversation was the most entertaining in America. When Margaret's father suddenly died and she had to support several siblings, she offered the women of Boston a series of gatherings she called conversations. This was a time when women were idealized as passive receptive vessels, and when the cult of true womanhood romanticized woman's domestic role. In the conversations, Margaret created a space 
where women could think through, as she said, the great questions of life, where they could, in her words, lay aside the shelter of vague generalities and be willing that others should think their sayings crude, shallow, or tasteless. She reminded the men in her circle, who spoke so often about human worth and dignity, to walk their talk when it came to women. Once Emerson wrote, that, wrote, her, wrote her that a friend of theirs had just had a baby, daughter, and he wrote, though no son, still a sacred event. <laughs> Margaret replied, why is not the advent of a daughter as sacred a fact as that of a son, I do believe? O oh, Waldo, most unteachable of men, that you are at heart a sinner on this point, I entreat you to seek light in prayer upon it. Someone described Waldo and Margaret as the Puritan and the Gypsy. She wrote to him, you are intellect, I am life. In 1840, Margaret became editor of a new liberal journal called The Dial, a vehicle for the Boston Transcendentalist Group. Her goal was to let all kinds of people have freedom to say their say. In her brief bio of Fuller, uh, this is, is listed with others on your program, Eve Kornfeld says Margaret rejected or demanded revisions in contributions which she found insufficiently original or clear, even when they came from Henry David or Ralph Waldo. Meanwhile, she coaxed poetry and essays from lesser-known figures, including several female friends, and in her editing, as in her teaching, she quietly overturned conventional gender expectations. When Margaret was in her 30s, she went west to the Great Lakes and lived for a while with Native Americans. That experience inspired her first book, Summer on the Lakes. She wrote, I feel acquainted with the soul of this race. There is a greatness, unique and precious, and who does not feel it will never duly appreciate the majesty of this American continent. Let the missionary, instead of preaching to the Indian, preach to the traitor who ruins him. When Margaret returned from the West, Horace Greeley hired her as literary critic for his newspaper, the New York Daily Tribune. She moved to New York, and she expanded her job to include social criticism. She visited prisons and mental institutions and reported her findings. She interviewed the prostitutes at Sing Sing, and they confided in her. She expanded one of her own Dial articles into her second and best-known work, called Woman in the 19th Century, in which she said... What woman needs is not as woman to act or rule, but as a nature to grow, as an intellect to discern, as a soul to live, to live freely and unimpeded, to unfold such powers as were given her. By being more a soul, she will not be less a woman, for nature is perfected through spirit. Now there is no woman, only an overgrown child. End of quote. She said if marriage is to be a union, we have to have units. <laughs> she dared to write about sex education, prostitution, and gender stereotyping. 
Many New Englanders found her language offensive to delicacy. I would say most of them did. They believed she needed to get married and stay home. Instead, in 1846, she sailed to Europe as a foreign correspondent to Greeley's Tribune. Fame preceded her. Her book was better received in England than here. She met Thomas Carlyle. She met the Brownings. In Paris, Chopin played for her. When she reached Rome, she was suddenly home. Italians welcomed her, and her passion matched theirs. She befriended the exiled Italian patriot Giuseppe Mazzini and aligned herself with the Italian struggle for independence. She fell in love with a much younger man, Giovanni da Soli, a marquis, a marquis with no money. And at age 38, she went to a small town in the hills outside Rome to have their child a son. By now, the Italian Revolution was underway. Margaret sent dispatches to the Tribune and reported on the fighting, much of which she saw from her balcony in Rome. She urged U.S. citizens to send money and encouragement to the Italian patriots. When the French invaded Rome, Margaret was put in charge of a hospital for the Italian wounded. When Rome fell to France, Margaret escaped to Florence with Dossoli and their two-year-old son, Gino. They decided to return to the States, somewhat reluctantly because she didn't know how she would be received with her family, and to try to make a new life. So in May 1850, they sailed on a slow boat that had 150 tons of Italian marble in its hold. During the voyage, Margaret's son nearly died of smallpox. The ship's captain died of smallpox and was buried at sea, and a less skilled sailor took command. The ship made it to New York, but just off Fire Island, during a raging storm, it hit a sandbar. The load of marble ripped open the hold. The ship began to break up, and for 12 hours, the passengers huddled on deck and watched rescue attempts fail because of high winds. Margaret, husband, and son all drowned. Only the little boy was found. Thoreau went down to search the beach. He found only a trunk of Margaret's clothing and letters, her manuscript of the history of the Italian Revolution, which was to be her masterwork, was lost at sea. Margaret was 40 years old. It is not woman, she said, but the law of right, the law of growth that speaks in us and demands the perfection of each being in its kind. Apple as apple, woman as woman. What concerns me now is that my life be a beautiful, powerful, in a word, a complete life of its kind. For the past 15 years, Professor Lendl Calder of Augustana College has given his students a test in the first week of the survey course that he teaches. He asks them to write a one to two page history of our nation using no sources except memory. His students think he's testing to see if they know the facts. But what he wants to know is what kind of story do they tell about our nation? Calder says that over the years, fewer and fewer students, now under 20%, are seeing the American past as a glory story. And here's what strikes him. 
The glory story hasn't been replaced by any alternative story. Over 70% of the students now see the American past as just one damn thing after another. (laughs) Calder wonders what will attract people to the study of history if they don't see it as an unfolding story. And so the Christian Century editors who comment on this say, uh, this is the progressive... uh, a liberal Christian magazine that's been around for some many, many years. They say, people who don't have a narrative sense of the American past are especially susceptible to politicians and other ideologues who, who try to weave their own versions of the past in an effort to manipulate people's emotions. When we don't know our past, it's hard to be good citizens. When we learn about our past, we get close to the messy lives of real people people like us, who made choices in the moment that turned out to be wise or tragic. The editors say historical knowledge keeps us humble about our own choices. We need the wisdom we can get only from knowing the stories of our past. This is why we are drinking from the well of our history this summer. This is why Kelly preached about Selma and James Reeb and civil rights last week. This is why I'm talking about Fuller and the Transcendentalists and why Dale Shui will share with us about Thoreau a little later today. It's not just to satisfy our curiosity. Not so we'll have answers when people ask. It's to strengthen us for the days ahead. Our ancestors' stories are food and drink for us, water of life for us. We drink from their well because we need them with us, in us, teaching us how to be good citizens in this age, how to stand on the side of love in this age. Take those transcendentalists. This is roughly 1820 to 1860. This bunch included serious scholars, great artists, educators with revolutionary ideas about how people learn, vegetarians going back to the land, Harvard men exuding white privilege and high talk. British observer Charles Dickens said, whatever is unintelligible is transcendental. (laughs) His opinion. But these these people were flawed and often full of themselves in their determination to become selfless. But our transcendentalists were on to something. There was Margaret Fuller, who was a force. Emerson, writer, lecturer, friend. His house in Concord was the hub, like our hub. Frederick Henry Hedge, scholar of German literature, believer in intuition, formed a club they all joined. Amos Bronson, Alcott educator and dreamer, started Temple School. His famous daughter, of course, is Louisa May. George Ripley, utopian, started the Brook Farm Commune experiment, short-lived but sincere. Theodore Parker, rebel minister, abolitionist with farm roots. Henry David Thoreau, philosopher sage, Alcott helped him build his cabin on Emerson's land. Elizabeth Peabody, educational reformer, had a lot to do with kindergarten starting, also taught at Alcott's Temple School. Fuller's conversations took place at Elizabeth's Boston bookstore. She was the one with the money, I I think. Um, William Henry Channing, Unitarian minister, one of 
uh, the revered Dr. Channing's nephews, took part in um, Ripley's Brook Farm Commune. Novelist Nathaniel Hawthorne, who was drawn to this crowd but liked to mock them, he married Elizabeth Peabody's pretty sister, Sophia. Nearly all of them wrote for the dial and worked for abolition. They even skated together on the frozen Concord River. Out on the ice, according to witness Sophia Hawthorne, Thoreau did dizzy turns and wild bacchic leaps. The weary Emerson leaned so far forward he was half lying on the air. And Hawthorne, in cloak and scarf, skated like a self-impelled Greek statue, stately and grave. I think what America needs is a great musical comedy about the transcendentalists. <laughs> Get the story out there with big songs, <clears throat> a sort of Concord chorus line. This week I even imagined plugging transcendentalists into the Peanuts comic strip. Emerson is Charlie, center stage, everybody's buddy, but not that adventuresome. Margaret Fuller is Lucy, minus the meanness, but keeping the brazen confidence and the ready-with-the-five-cent advice. Nathaniel Hawthorne is Schroeder, aloof and classical. Thoreau is probably Linus the philosopher, although sometimes he's Snoopy up on the doghouse typing, it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> Parker is Pigpen, stirring up dust clouds of controversy. But, of course, as soon as I have this superficial little fantasy, I, I see I have slipped into seeing the transcendentalists as isolated in their own little world. I need to use a wider lens. In Charlie Brown comics, we know the adults are somewhere, but we never see them. We just hear the sounds, wah, 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 that signify grown-up voices. What's clear is that to understand the transcendentalists, we can't just look at them. We have to know what they were reacting to, responding to. We have to hear the sounds that were going on around them. There were the not-so-far-away sounds of the slavery auction block. There were the daily sounds of chopping and sawing as virgin forests came down and corporate offices went up. There were sounds of railroads coming in, hammer on spike and the roar and clang of engines. Not far away in Lowell, Massachusetts, there was the clatter of new huge textile mills where young women worked 5 a.m. to 7 p.m. standing, breathing oil lamp fumes and cotton dust with a half-hour break at noon, and if they dared to go on strike, they were simply fired. The sounds around the transcendentalists said that the business of Americans is business, commerce, pillaging national resources. But the transcendentalists said, the business of Americans is not exploitation of the earth, but exploration of the spirit. Our business as humans is spirit and service. Our business is reverence for nature because nature is spirit, and we are part of nature. So nature is the holy text we read in order to know ourselves. I'll quote Emerson. This is in our hymnal. I'll quote Emerson who said, I hate quotes. Tell me what you know. <laughs> there is a deep power, he said, in which we exist, 
and whose beatitude is accessible to us. Within us is the soul of the whole. When it breaks through our intellect, it is genius. When it breathes through our will, it is virtue. When it flows through our affections, it is love. Standing on the side of love. They did that as well as they knew how. Listen to what Thoreau writes. He's just declared in his writing, this was a Um, one of his early essays, he's just declared his regard for Buddha's teaching. And then he says, I know that some will have hard thoughts of me when they hear their Christ named beside my Buddha, yet I am sure that I am willing they should love their Christ more than my Buddha, for the love is the main thing. And I like him too. If there's ever a contest between old written rules, say in the Bible, and our own direct experience of good and grace and moral right, that is, love, then love trumps the rules. For love is the main thing, as Thoreau said, standing on the side of love. Besides the sounds of commerce, there were other loud sounds going on around those transcendentalists. In the 1830s and 1840s, there were the sounds of huge, feverish Christian revival movements. This was the Second Great Awakening, outdoor gatherings of thousands with Billy Graham-style big media preachers, Charles Finney and others. This is when church attendance shot up, and at these huge rallies, these huge gatherings, the goal was to to inspire a come-to-Jesus moment. People rushed forward, fainted, fell down, gave their lives to Jesus in a one-time conversion episode that branded them forever as one of God's own. One day they were not saved, the next day they were. Washed clean all at once, then safe for eternity. The transcendentalists had a different view altogether. They said that we are more like plants, like trees, like roses. The divine seed is within us. We need sun, we need watering, we need tending. Helpful disciplines are contemplating nature, reading, journaling, healthy physical labor, conversing with others, activism. And you can hear the privileged, educated voice in this, but they said, with tending, we unfold gradually and lifelong. Transcendentalists called it self-culture, as in horticulture, soul culture. Now we'd say spiritual growth. Our lives are more than one damned thing after another, much as it feels that way sometimes. Each life is an unfolding story. Channing, Emerson, Fuller, Alcott all used the unfold word over and over. We're here to unfold our powers. They would say unfold our powers and use them for good. If we believe this, then this belief comes the root, becomes the root and the core of our justice work. Everyone deserves a chance to unfold. Women, the, the enslaved, the sweatshop workers, even the majestic forest trees. Emerson wrote, the unfolding of his own nature is the chief end of man, 
A divine impulse at the core of his being impels him to this. And, of course, Fuller would have reminded him to add her and she and woman. Here's the thing about Margaret Fuller. She insisted on women's rights, yes, but she insisted on so much more. She dared to blur the gender lines. She dared to say that man and woman are different parts of one thought. She said that gender is not a rigid category, but each soul contains both masculine and feminine, and these flow in and out of us. She saw that gender and sexual identity are part of a deep, fluid, and humbling mystery, like the mystery of nature before which we are called to be reverent. This human mystery is one the people of our nation are quarreling about and wrestling with, trying to decide, as I see it, whether the mystery is primarily frightening or primarily beautiful. And we know where we stand, with our forebears on the side of reverence and love. These are our legacy, these ones. These ones who put love ahead of doctrine, who put reverence for nature ahead of exploiting the earth, whose belief in the right of each soul to unfold was their basis for reform. Today our world has changed in scale, in speed, and complexity, but the great questions and choices haven't changed that much. As we educate ourselves about immigrant rights this year, as we say no to a proposed marriage amendment, this isn't the last time we'll hear from our transcendentalists. They are not far from us. Blessed be and amen.